Welcome back to the Motivations Podcast. Uh, today I'm joined by Dr. Tony Sampson. Tony's a reader in digital media culture and communication at the University of East London. Good morning, Tony. Good morning, Darren. I was going to take the mick out of the Spurs result last night, but seeing as Chelsea lost to West Ham two nights ago, I can't really say anything at the moment. <laughs> what a disaster. Yeah, it was a disaster. Mourinho is livid. Yeah. <laughs> more VAR, more VAR controversy. Okay. Um, okay, I wanted to talk to you today about um, a number of things to do with your research and teaching profile, uh, and we'll probably run through a few of your your books and uh, kind of general research activity that the two of us have talked about quite a lot in recent years. But before we get to that, do you want to give us just a general overview and background introduction to your general research and teaching? Yeah, okay. So um, I work at the University of East London where um, I'm based really in a, in a media uh, and communications department within a larger school called Arts and Digital Industries. Um, my teaching covers roughly media at MA level, PhD students. I teach on the BA as well. Um, but I've been teaching really in the area of, of design for quite a few years. So I'm a bit of a, an unusual fit in the sense that I'm kind of media, but with one foot in design. So I've been leading and uh, teaching for a number of years on digital media courses. Um, so I specialise in areas such as user experience design, uh, HCI, that sort of thing. So <clears throat> a bit of an unusual fit, but uh, or you might call it a, a unique fit. Yeah. I also work quite a lot with the art students because we run quite a lively prof doc um, in fine art and uh, I supervise quite a lot of their projects. So I'm spread over quite a quite a wide area, actually. So that's that's my teaching. Research wise, I've been involved in um, quite a few kind of research projects, books, etc. over the years. Again, really focusing on broadly digital media cultures. So that's uh, a wide range, but perhaps when we get to uh, talk about the books, I can sort of add some more detail to that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, well, should we start with uh, Virality, which was yeah, your sure. book that came out, I think, in 2012, was it? That's right. Long, long time uh, ago. Yeah. And that talked a lot about contagion theory in relation to um, networks and social media. Yeah. Do you want to talk a bit more about about virality and what was involved yeah. in that book? Yeah, OK. I mean, it's probably worth going back to, uh, well, going back to my PhD, really, I suppose. But yeah. uh, I've always had this kind of strong interest in digital media technologies. Um, so around the time of PhD, I was looking for some sort of project that I could get involved in. I had a certain amount of interest in, in coding and uh, some applications I was using at the time. And uh, after talking to some people, uh, you know, some supervisors or potential supervisors, I started thinking of how I could look at some interesting aspect of, of coding, some alternative coding. So I started to investigate computer viruses to start off with uh, and was doing quite an, an extensive study on a kind of history of computer viruses, um, some ideas around how computer viruses might be theorized. Um, but around that time, I also received an email from a, a, a colleague of mine called Yussi Parika, who uh, I think this is as early as 2004, I, I think, who turned around and said that uh, he was studying pretty much the same thing. And uh, 
his book, uh, Digital Contagions, was a kind of result of that. So I had a bit of a crisis during that period of time when I had to suddenly re rethink what I was doing. And uh, I, also around that time, I was in contact with Luciana Parizzi and uh, Tiziana Terranova, who were both based at UEL at this time. And um, well, I, they said, well, you can still stay on the kind of contagion uh, theory aspect and still look at media, media contagion. But uh, had I looked at the work of Gabriel Tard, who was a, a kind of, as you might know now, yes, kind of sociologist from the kind of origins of, of sociology along, along with Durkheim. And uh, that really changed the whole kind of um, you know, angle of research and perspective that I was developing. And really just took off from there. Uh, and that's the result was virality really in the end. That's the, the book several years later, somewhere down the line, when someone always said to me, a PhD isn't a book. And uh, that was true because the PhD has nothing to do with the book. The book is a completely new invention, but um, that's where it all started. So uh, I mean, just out of interest, so virality ended up spinning this kind of you know theory, media theory of contagion. Um, you know, somewhere down the line, that's actually been the book that's drawn most attention to my work. Um, and you know, I've got stories of people like Snapchat contacting me uh, quite some time ago to ask, ask how my theories of morality fit with their ideas about virality growth, um, which is their kind of economic model or was their economic model at the time. And so that even in the more recent book, I've, I've kind of started covering how virality has changed over the years and the different kind of aspects of virality. So off the back of virality, you moved towards over the next few years after that, your next book, which was The Assemblage Brain. Yeah, um, sure. Do, do, do you want to just expand a little bit to talk about that project and how it how it how it was your next kind of stepping stone on from virality and what you were doing in that project? Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the uh, sort of you know the, the common sort of threads uh, that go from both books is this work of Gabriel Tard. So, the Assemblage Brain, like virality, is still a contagion theory book. In fact, I look at it as kind of part of a trilogy of books that I've written, you know, like Lord of the Rings or something. But um, <laughs> so it's uh, a <laughs> So there's uh, this, this Gabriel Tard contagion theory thing needed to uh, be you know, expanded upon. I always looked upon virality as more of a, a kind of literature review. And uh, by the time I got to the assembly's brain, I was kind of thrashing out a kind of methodology. Um, incidentally, at the same time, and this is quite an important uh, detail, my teaching at UEL and around the design things I spoke about with earlier, um, particularly around UX design, led me to go to quite a number of seminars in, in London. This was probably at the start of a kind of burgeoning UX design industry uh, in the city of London. And uh, I went to lots of uh, seminars, industry seminars, uh, where we started to hear more and more about the way that the brain uh, works in these kind of design strategies. So this would go right from, how's, how's the sound, Darren? Sorry. Sounds still good. I'll shout if it's not. Okay, just might just have to cut that. So I'll just start again. So, so I was attending more and more of these uh, UX uh, design uh, seminars and there were lots and lots of stuff around the brain. Uh, so I was interested in uh, one particular book, which was called Neuro Web Design, which kind of referred to all these kind of neuroscientific techniques and how they could be utilized to improve the user experience, to maximize your know, purchase intent, to improve the kind of you know, the consumer experience online 
And so I started to think, well, you know, how does that bear up with the work of Gabriel Tard? You know, these kind of two interests. On one hand, this kind of increasing interest in neuro, and uh, on the other hand, the contagion theory. And so I started looking at Tard's work more closely around his ideas about the brain. And you know, without going into too much detail about Tard here, he was interested in imitation and how society kind of formed around imitation. In fact, he actually says society is imitation. So it's quite a, you know, a, a, an interesting thing where we can talk about that a little bit more. But uh, the, 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 the kind of organ that uh, this kind of, you know, galvanizes around this, this imitation society is the brain. And so, you know, I was really interested in how maybe Tard's ideas around the brain could be in some way used to, to think through this increasing interest in the UX industry around the brain and the appeals made to that. So if you get into some of the detail of the book, it kind of navigates its way through a kind of Tardian uh, contagion theory uh, alongside these ideas around UX. Okay. okay, I mean, just just to add also at that time, this idea around the neuro just was getting so blown out. You know, we had um, every sort of subject or every discipline seemed to have neuro put in front of it. Yeah. So. You know, one, one obvious thing here is neuromarketing and a lot of the hype around neuromarketing I was interested in at the time, but also neuroaesthetics, which equally makes some quite crazy claims. And one of my favourite was uh, neurotheology. So, you know, ev everything at the time seemed to have the kind of, you know, the prefix of uh, neuro added to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that, that's what I meant by neuroculture. Yeah. I think I think that's really important because on the one hand, like as you were saying, that, there, that there's a a healthy interest in or turn towards the, the neurological um, focus. But at the same time, I think sometimes we've, we've talked in the past about how some analysis can be quite not just reductive, but it can jump to the point of um, explaining things through a, a almost reductive neurological perspective that lacks the critical social perspective that we would typically talk about in our fields. Do you want to just discuss the way in which rather than thinking it of it rather than just thinking of it as, as the neuro expanding our kind of media and cultural uh, toolkits that we're familiar with, sure. the stuff that we typically do in critical research actually harnesses the neurological perspective as well. Yeah, sure. I mean, really, I must start by saying I, I'm a critical theorist. Yes, absolutely. So these, these books are all about critical theory. Yeah. Um, I studied the beginning of the uh, assemblage brain, the introduction uh, critical theory. And um, I'm kind of like, quite, it's quite controversial, I suppose. Because one of my critiques of the kind of tradition in critical theory is that it strikes up a, a big distance between itself and the kind of sciences that it looks at. So, yeah, we always talk about critical distance and remaining kind of aloof. Um, I read some quite interesting stuff by Kate Howes actually about that and how really the humanities, uh, particularly the critical area in the humanities, really needs to get away from that kind of aloofness and become more, more involved in, in the topics that it's kind of investigating and critiquing. So the whole of the beginning of the assemblage brain actually sets out an agenda, which I call dystopian media theory, yeah. right? which is actually a bit of a joke, but uh, I've, I've developed even more in the, in the latest book. 
but you know it, it, it's quite down on its subject that thus the kind of dystopian aspect but if you look at the way that dystopias are kind of been studied and if you look at the kind of history of um you know the kind of william burroughs kind of dystopia uh you know aldous huxley and how actually how burroughs um, dystopia becomes a big important part of the control society by Deleuze. If you if you look at that, there's some really interesting things because it's almost like we're riding a kind of paradox. You know, on, on one half you have that kind of um, coercive, persuasive, manipulative kind of media, whereas on the other half you have this kind of surrender of the uh, the individual or of, of, of collective to, to 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 the kind of slave kind of mentality, right? So I was quite interested in you know how control worked, but also how acquiescence worked. So how people give up to these kind of systems. So that, that's one aspect about my critical theory. So the other one is also to break down this idea of distance. So to try and say, well, actually, we're not, we're not I'm not going to be a critical theorist who, who remains aloof, remains distant from the subject. I'm actually going to get stuck in to the uh, to the subject matter itself. So there's quite a lot of, sort of techie detail and science detail. You know, I, I, I say in there that if anyone ever turns around to a critical theorist and says, well, you're not, a, you know, you're not, you don't do neuroscience. How can you talk about it? We've kind of lost the battle straight away. If that's our attitude, you know, we must be able to make a reading of this stuff to critique yes. it. Uh, the yeah. worst kind of the worst kind of critique is the critique that just doesn't understand it. Yes. Uh, you know, so we've got to try to understand it and, and bear up to those kind of criticisms. So, you know, I'd already come from a tradition of that kind of thing. When I did the computer virus stuff, I was kind of working in an area called software studies. And that was all premised on the idea that you really did have some idea about how software worked. You know, a lot of people in software studies, for example, have got experience coding. Yeah. So not, not just talking about algorithmic logic as a kind of control mechanism that they don't actually understand. They do actually know how it works. And I think that's interesting because it kind of, then re re reveals some of the more glitchy, accidental kind of aspects of, of science and technology that uh, most science scientists and engineers know about, <laughs> but won't tell you a lot about it. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, you, you get to know that, you know, well, one of the things about the, the neuro, neuro thing, when I started writing The Assemblage Brain, so that was probably when Virality came out, 2012, come out in 2016, Around that time, the idea was that neuro was going to be completely dominant. Well, that seems to have gone off a little bit at the moment. I don't know if you you you, you agree with that, but um, I reckon most of that is due to the fact that a lot of the claims made during the time, those kind of you know claims made for the research grants, probably didn't come to fruition. You know, if you if you listen to a lot of the claims of neuroaesthetics about how they can tell where beauty is in the brain, you know, it's like almost locationist kind of thinking. You know put someone in front of a, 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 a piece of art and then scan the brain and try to find where beauty is. I mean, it's a ridiculous premise. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of that hype has sort of died down now. Um, but yeah, yeah. So um, dystopian media theory. I think partly what you were talking about as well there, um, similar in, in, in field of consciousness studies as well. Right. Uh, the, the, the kind of the reductive materialist perspective stimulated something early on that that was intuitive and drew attention to, to certain components of um, of neuroscience that need to be need to be considered and understood and thought about but didn't didn't provide the entire it was too reductive in terms of the materialist approach um, to the brain that, that wasn't 
considering enough about other communicative practices in culture and and society. Um, but on that point, you mentioned previously when you come out to Newcastle to talk to us, that you, rather than that potential response you said about a moment ago where people can be dismissive and say, well, you're a, th you're a critical theorist, you don't, you don't know the science. Sure. You actually got in the room with some of the um, neuroscientists that, and particularly the popular neuroscientists in the field and got some quite positive responses from them, didn't you? Where you really, they could tell you really understood the work and you really engaged with it. And they got said, oh yeah, I didn't really think about it like that. There was, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, <laughs> I don't know. So it's not, it wasn't always that response, but it wasn't always doom and gloom, was it? There were some quite constructive responses no, as well. I must say probably the most negative responses I've had is probably probably from my own kind, you know, from, from critical theorists. I did a talk in, in Germany when I, I was, um, it's quite early days. I was invited over to Germany. To be honest with you, I can't even remember, remember where now. It was not when I was, I went in and went out very quickly. But um, I, I got a really hostile response from a, a critical sort of cultural theorist in there, who accusing on the side of science, you know. So uh, just to flip that round, yeah, scientists yeah. are a little bit more polite, I found. So, um, <laughs> I, I'm not too sure whether it was just the fact I hadn't developed my ideas for the assembly's brain, the kind of critical theory angle enough, or this person was just didn't want to engage at all with anything that had any kind of scientific kind of content in it. But I, I come from a, you know an area loosely called new materialism, you know, also associated with affect theory, and really, you know, we we're openly interested in what science has to say. And what science can add to um, to theory, um, so it, it is at odds with a lot lot of the humanities more so than it probably would be with some of the scientists. Yeah. So we're, yeah. we're kind of stuck in a bit of a, an unusual kind of island in the middle. Um, yeah. yeah. But yeah, you know, I, I must say equally there are some examples of new materialism and um, an affect theory where the science is badly applied and almost sort of wears a target on itself you know come and get me i don't really know what i'm talking about so yeah. the pressure is always on when you take on a project to really kind of get into the kind of scientific papers and understand them the best you can you know yeah. so if it's good if it's got a good response then great but, um excellent well that that point about affect theory that you made mentioned a minute ago and the importance of interdisciplinarity um Affect theory is a kind of growing field in terms of its popularity in the last sort of decade or so. Oh. Um, is it that is it that kind of radical interdisciplinarity that you think is partly responsible for its its appeal across so many disciplines within and beyond the social sciences? Because it is able to connect and integrate those other perspectives that you were talking about. Yeah, let's, if I can try and remember to deal with this in two ways, because I, I want to talk a little bit about how it's kind of spread and become more influential. But let, I just want to make a connection with what we were talking about earlier about the interest in science. So for me, what, what affect theory does, and this is why I like it, is it kind of challenges that centrality of human consciousness that a lot of the uh, particularly humanities and social sciences have, have had for so long. I remember years ago, um, someone arguing with me at a, a conference about representation and you know we, we only think in representations um you know it, this is where, where science is actually coming quite useful you know there is a kind of an approach in neuroscience 
or the neurosciences, they're not just one thing, where consciousness itself has been kind of quite challenged, Joe. And there's this whole idea of what we call the non-conscious, not, not the unconscious, not any kind of, you know, sort of repressed, hidden, dreamlike theatre world of conscious, uh, unconscious, but a non-conscious. So non-conscious is a very kind of thing, you know, things that are con controlling things that you do, and, you know, I don't know, behaviours and habits, but yeah. don't appear in consciousness. I mean, the most radical neuroscience says there's something like, you know, a sort of, I don't know, 20-80 split with only sort of, you know, 20% of it being consciousness. And it, some of it's even less than that, 5%. So, you know, effect theory for me is really interesting because it comes from a very sort of similar uh, way and sort of says, well, consciousness isn't all. So, you know, I had an interesting dialogue with Kate Howes, again, to mention her, um, published in the um, Capricious, is it Capricious? Capacious, I always say Capricious. Capacious uh, journal, uh, Greg, Greg Sidgworth's uh, journal. And the dialogue really revolves around her, her accusation that effect theory or new, new materialism did a good thing by saying, well, hang on, you know, consciousness isn't all. We, we need to kind of think of theories where we kind of destabilize, decentralize consciousness. But what she goes on to say is that they made the big mistake by, um, by ignoring consciousness, not having any explanation for it. Well, see, I, I kind of disagree with that. You know, I think you can you can decenter it and, and, and look at it from another perspective. But, you, you know, it doesn't mean that we're ignoring it. And my project really from the assemblage brain through until the current work is trying to think about, you know, well, OK, you know, we all think we all have a, a what, what who, are, who am I kind of question, a kind of phenomenological kind of question in our heads about who we are. But, you know, going back to Tard, he, he, he challenged that as being the kind of, you know, the best way to kind of analyse things. Because, you know, if we discount things like our non-consciousness, if we discount those kind of things that are outside of consciousness, having an influence on that kind of way in which we kind of, you know, centralise our thinking, then then we, we miss, miss miss most of it. Yeah. So, so I don't think it's discounting consciousness. It's just saying, well, we need to think of consciousness as being inclusive of all the non-conscious influences to, to listeners who are less familiar with the field that we're talking about, I think sometimes the sometimes the easier way of, of breaking up these components we're talking about is that there's consciousness in the way we typically talk about it in terms of the human experience and what we understand it to be human and us thinking yeah. and all those other um, neurobiological factors that might sometimes be described as the non-conscious but they're, they're there making everything happen um, but they're not necessarily included in what we typically talk about in terms of the mind and the conscious mind and so on um, yeah at the at the worst case when you mentioned sort of that reductive materialist kind of angle yeah. uh, you know consciousness is in the neuron consciousness is in the sort of synaptic gap or whatever so that, that's the, the worst kind of materialist sort of thing that you know consciousness actually emerges from the kind of parts of the of the brain right so i'm i'm, I'm not particularly interested in that and I've, I've, I've critiqued that for the same reasons that you you mentioned earlier really yeah. but i'll tell you it, it, you know gabriel tard says that we have a number of kind of selves right one of the selves he says is a psychological self and that is the one i think you're referring to there it's, it's the one that we feel that we are you know i am me you know we all we all have that kind of 
you know, Kate Howe's point is that we wouldn't be able to think of all these complex ideas about non-consciousness unless we unless we have that kind of, you know, self that we translate all that through. Yeah, yeah. Right? That's the self that writes and thinks and does all the rational stuff, the cognitive sometimes, self. Sometimes referred to as the illusion of the self. Yeah, well, it, this is exactly the point that, that, that Tard makes. So Tard's uh, society of imitation is that we are all part of this big imitation cycle and flows, right? Microflows of, of imitation. Yeah. And the psychological self is really just a kind of almost a, something that's made to understand that. Or not necessarily understand it, to actually, you know, to be, to actually exist in it. That we, we kind of have to kind of have this kind of, you know, centred self. So, um, I, you know, so my whole point here is quite simple. It's, yeah, I don't disagree with, with the idea that we have a self. Um, but the, it's necessary to decenter it and consider all the non-conscious stuff. Because otherwise, otherwise we miss the whole trick. I, I really like at the moment the growing conversation around something that um, my mate said he was interested in a while back. And when he said it, I was kind of like, oh, that's a bit bonkers. But it's, it make, it, it, some of it makes a lot of sense. And there's a growing interest in something called panpsychism. Yeah, OK. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the yeah. idea that actually if we're really talking about the non-conscious, what we typically call the non-conscious sort of components of things that create consciousness in its entirety, then it might still be there might still be material um things but they're not necessarily really reductive to brains and the idea that there are so many objects that we look at as dead being dead objects in some way contain whatever consciousness might be they have consciousness because they have those um aspects of matter that are sure. running through everything beyond human beings that make the universe happen and that's actually where consciousness might arise from whatever it is that's pushing that yeah sure uh, I, yeah i covered that in the assemblage brain because uh yeah. one of the people i'm interested in is whitehead you know yes, Alfred so, Whitehead. Course, Alfred whitehead. Yeah. so you know what he was uh into things like that i mean he's got this really broad kind of uh complex understanding of what uh feeling is and he talks about you know the, the, how the stone fills the sun which is a good idea of example of his kind of panpsychism yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. There's, there's lots of different areas of that that some some i agree with more than others yeah. uh other kind of cognitive views of kind of distributed cognition through objects i find that less attractive to the way that in which you know we might think of consciousness being something completely different to the human experience of that yes but, uh, yeah be, being in matter itself you know vital yes. matter. yeah so he was really interested in that, just as a reference. Uh, Stephen Shaviro, you know, his kind of work and of course, the, of course, the way yeah. the way um, you know they use kind of fabulations, science, sci-fi to kind of look at what consciousness could be. I can't remember if it was whether it was him or whether I read it somewhere else. But he said, you know, if if, if computers ever de developed a consciousness, we wouldn't recognise it because it wouldn't be anything like our consciousness. Yeah. You know, it. it if a stone has consciousness again we wouldn't recognize it because it wouldn't be anything we've got we've got no kind of um you know uh, registers in which to kind of compare it to but yeah, yeah. so there's a big big ch chunk of us uh, the assembly's brain given over to that kind of discussion well my mate who talked who mentioned panpsychism to me quite a few years back it was the shaviro stuff that he just read that he right. made in there you go. to me and i was a bit like oh i don't get all this what i really did like more recently was uh was quite a brief introduction but a really really concise and clearly well written um book by annika harris all oh, right okay 
she did I've done heard. a book about consciousness where she panpsychism is her kind of endpoint that she reaches in there um and uh, she's written it really well and i think it would be of interest to you know audiences beyond the fields that we work in so readerships beyond the fields we work in um moving moving on to more recent work you've done you've recently been working on a, a book called the sleepwalkers guide to social media is yeah. that is that just come out or just coming out if the video <laughs> works <laughs> if, if this is audio only you won't be able to see that yes yeah, it came out in uh, in june so quite early in june they're always surprised with academic publishers because you, you hear about horrendous long queues but if you go through the uh, production process okay suddenly they just come out yes. you know, yeah. all of a sudden yeah. So uh, I was expecting it to come out in early July and in early June, it, the guy emailed me and said, your books are here. Would you like some copies? So, yeah, it, it's out. So, I, yeah, OK, so let, let's let's make a bridge here. So I said originally that there were kind of three books in this trilogy, my, my, my Lord of the Rings. But um, the latter yeah. one really explores, I mean, the, the title of the Sleepwalker's Guide to um, Social Media. Someone said the other day that you know, I needed a subtitle to let everyone know what that means. But if you've ever followed the kind of um, the, the, the Gabriel Tard, uh, you know, the, the, the Gabriel Tard idea about society, you'd know that one of the key terms he uses is the somnambulist or, the, you know, the sleepwalker. So the sleepwalker in, for Tard is exactly what we're talking about in terms of kind of non-conscious and consciousness so it's 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 more than that actually it's not just kind of individual uh conscious and, and non-conscious it is the collective non-conscious so we go a little bit further with with tard but consciousness itself isn't something that just resides in individuals it's something that resides in 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 societies in, in collectives there's there's nothing new here of course because durkheim said pretty much the same thing in fact, Durkheim saw society as the consciousness of consciousness, you know, or, or the collective uh, consciousness, the kind of a, a, almost like cognitive global awakening of brains as a, as a society. But what um, what Tard does, which is unique and makes him very different to Durkheim, is that his collective consciousness is 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 non-conscious. Okay, so it comes back to all those things we were talking about in neuroscience, but but kind of you know stretched out and imagined as being part of collectives. And so what I wanted to do really is is look at a whole range of ideas of how you could approach the contemporary situation. I was looking at post Cambridge Analytica. I was looking at the rise of Trump, uh, rise of race hate, you know, race uh, hate speech. Uh, all on all on social media, all the kind of bad dystopian media theory stuff about social media. And again, trying to think about how we could apply Tard and Tard's uh, Sleepwalker to e each of those things. And so the Sleepwalker guide is, is just that. It's, you know, how, how, do, how do we think of these things um, according to kind of Tard's Sleepwalker? Excellent. Um, I was going to mention that point you were saying and uh in relation to murmurations as in the name of this podcast murmurations was a metaphor that i used in media and effective mythologies where i was kind of pointing to this similar thing of what you were talking about a moment ago is that if we all share these same non-conscious components and there are communicative and effective and emotive practices out there in society and 
media and politics and so on that we're all responding to it makes sense that we have these kind of pat patterns of behavior and and shared perceptions and and what you talked about in contagion theory as well right back in virality it makes sense that these things that you get these phenomena occurring collectively because we're 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 all responding in in our in certain ways to to the similar kind of media and culture that we're consuming sure i, I use the uh, the murmuration uh, to introduce a lecture on what i call pass on power right so um pass on power is really that within within networks people pass on things kind of almost in an unconscious way or non-conscious way so you know lar large big events kind of emerge from very small uh or origins uh but a lot of the kind of things that are spread in in that uh, emergence of that big event uh and are not really known so they're not sort of cognitive so it's it's, it's really a a, a a a contrast with sort of collective intelligence smart mob the idea that all the small things that emerge in this kind of cognitive thinking global brain uh, I'm, I'm looking at it emerges more in a kind of non-conscious uh, brain. Yeah. Have you had any responses to this book yet? Have you shared much of the material from this at the conferences you've been to? And have you, how, have you had any kind of general idea of how people are receiving it at the moment? Well, it, it, you know, it's had some initial fairly good reviews, so I'm quite optimistic about that. Right. I must say the whole COVID situation has uh, not lent itself entirely to, um, you know, the going to conferences and talking about it. I had a wonderful uh, invite over to um, speak in the States at Duke uh, just, prior, just prior to all this happening. And uh, unfortunately, that was cancelled. But that was based on the assemblage brain and some of the stuff I published prior to this book, which, you know, part of a feature of it. So it all looked, looked quite good. <laughs> but uh, I suppose, uh, on the other hand, I've been told that people are buying more books and sitting at home reading during lockdown. <laughs> so I, I, I wait, I wait to see the royalty check to see if that reflects any of that. <laughs> and how's your, obviously your, the, the obvious answer to this question is the same as this is interrupted by COVID, but your, your conference series on social media. Yeah. Um, could you want to just say a bit about that? Because one thing that I've been talking to people about in, on the podcast is just, these some of the smaller networks that we can get involved in across our, these these fields of research and also how collaborative they are and supportive they are for PhDs and early career researchers. Yeah, OK, I, I'll give you a bit of a background story of that. So yeah. many years ago, we were offered some money to get students involved in research projects. And I, I, I'd be honest, I wrote it on the back of a fag packet, you know, well, well I like effect and we, we, we kind of do social media. So I got one of my undergraduates to set up a, a seminar you know I, I, I did some of the publicity with them and we called it i think we called it social media and affect at that stage funny enough and um that was quite some while ago and a friend of mine a psychologist at uel had a book about emotional psychology darren ellis and uh, two two friends and ian tucker and they said can we do a book launch as well and we put the uh you know the call for papers out and i just thought it was going to be like a few people local you know uel types maybe some others in london and we got a really good response you know more more than just a seminar more like a, a kind of symposium kind of thing so um that was great so that the following year i thought well let's try that again and we did it and we just got more and more uh stuff and what we were noticing in noticing was the kind of interdisciplinarity of, 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 the, of, the, of the of the you know the responses 
mean, psychology is an obvious area, but art, um, you know, cultural theory. So, you know, affect itself travels very well across disciplines. Um, so, yeah, we, we had, we, it's just grown and grown. Um, the last one, which was going to be our fifth one. Um, oh, let's talk, uh, talk, talk about the fourth one. The fourth one, we had Patricia Clough come from, uh, Clough, sorry, come from the States. Um, Greg Seedworth came from the States as well. And yeah, amazing event. So the fifth one was going to be even bigger and better, you know, as, as these things tend, tend to grow. And we had a fantastic program. In fact, the day I postponed it, I'd actually finished the program and it was all confirmed. So oh. we, we just, well, we postponed it. In a way, it was good we got that far because yeah, I, I, yeah. I'm hoping I can just go back, pick it up and just put it back on once yeah. all the stuff's over. Yeah. But we have in the meantime uh, got a 4.5. So I'll, I'll do a plug for that now. Um, on my blog, which is the Virality blog, so if you search for Tony Sampson plus Virality blog, you'll find it on Google. Um, we're going to run 4.5, so it's not a full one. The university said, well, let's do one online. Well, I've kind of compromised. I don't believe that conferences necessarily work so well online. You know, I, I probably could be proved wrong because it's probably the only way they, they're going to happen in the short term at least. Um, but yeah, so 4.5 is, is a collection and we've had something like, you know, 30, 40 uh, bits sent to us. I say bits because they're performances from artists, they're video links of, of people doing papers as performance. It's a real kind of mix of stuff, very exciting material. And so on the 16th and 17th of July, we're going to kind of in, introduce the programme in the morning, the afternoon and in the evening. So it's going to have a kind of conferency feel to it. And obviously circulate, uh, you know, as things happen up through social media. So if you if people are listening and it comes out before the 16th of July, please check out my blog and you'll see this stuff unfold as the day goes on. Brilliant. So Brilliant. sounds great. Um, well, we're I'm quite strict with time on these um, and we're just about done for time now, to be honest. Oh, but that was a really rich conversation. I, I thought. I think people will find that really interesting, whether they're familiar with the field of research that we're working or not, to be honest. So thank you very much for your time, Tony. Yeah, cheers, Darren. Nice to hear from you again. Yeah, yeah nice to speak to you. Take care and I'll speak to you again soon. Thank okay. you. Okay. See you. Bye.